Years ago now, my son Mac and I, we visited the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. The museum shines the spotlight on 342 members who have made a memorable contribution to the sport of baseball's 177-year history. The game's all-time greats are enshrined in the Hall of Fame. And what a fun day Mac and I had touring the Hall of Fame. But today, you and I are going to be touring the Bible's Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11 spotlights the Old Testament's great examples of belief. This morning, we're going to walk with the giants of faith and pray that their faith rubs off on us. Well, the writer begins here by defining faith. Verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Christian life is full of blessing. Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And yet, according to Ephesians here, our blessings are spiritual and heavenly, whereas we are physical and tactile and earthbound people, and that's what makes those blessings ethereal or hard for us to grasp. Here's our dilemma. The blessings that we have in Christ are spiritual and eternal, whereas we occupy a physical body and we are confined to a temporal world. We're used to interacting with our surroundings through our five senses, yet spiritual blessings can't be touched or tasted or smelled or seen or heard. But God has an answer to our problem. It's faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. See, faith brings substance and texture to spiritual and whispery realities. Faith is like a handle. By faith, we can grab hold of God's love and power and peace and truly possess them for ourselves. Ever have trouble opening a jar? What you do is you get a textured rag or a towel. You wrap it around that slick top. And the rag enables you to grip it and apply the torque that you need to twist off the lid. Well, this is what faith does. It produces spiritual torque. It's our way of being able to get a grip on God's blessings. Faith is the sixth sense that perceives the spiritual and the eternal. As Oswald Sanders once put it, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. Faith alerts us to the spiritual traffic around us. It opens our eyes to God's work in our lives. Think of faith as the bobber on the end of your fishing line. It sits on top of the water. With your eyes, you can't tell what's going on under the surface. But when you see that bobber plunge, you know that you've hooked a fish. And faith is like that fishing bobber. It alerts you to the invisible realities that are on the other end of the line. Well, verse 2 tells us, for, it is, for by it, or by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. Realize the impact that this passage had on the Hebrew believers to whom it was sent. When they left the institutions of Judaism to trust Jesus as their Messiah, they were accused by their friends 
and their family and their rabbis of abandoning their Jewish roots. And yet here they are assured that a life of faith is a hallmark of Jewish heritage, not a departure. All the great Hebrew heroes gain God's approval, not by good works or by religious deeds, but always by faith. And by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. You know, astronomers today theorize that 95% of the matter in the universe is invisible. Outer space is made up of far more than meets the human eye. The universe we live in is unimaginably large, but it is also infinitesimally small. At first, we discovered the molecule. We don't see it, but we know it's there. Then the smaller atom, then the smaller proton and neutron. Today, scientists talk of even smaller particles like quarks and gluons, and photons, and neutrinos, and leptons, and bosons. You know all about bosons, don't you? (laughs) And yet the writer of Hebrews was ahead of science. For he says here, the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And whether great or small, everything that God created began with his word. Verse 3 says it clearly, the worlds were framed by the word of God. Thus you can't have faith in God without faith in his word. Once the famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, he wrote a letter to a supporter. In it, he boasted of his abundance. He says, we have 25 cents in all the promises of God. Maybe that's how you feel today. But God's work always begins with faith in God's word. Real faith believes that it's true because God said so. And the writer here says that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The word translated worlds can mean ages or periods. Both the physical universe and the history of mankind have both been formed by God's word. God has an unfolding plan. History doesn't just happen randomly. History is his story. The cornerstone of faith is the realization that God controls world events, even our events, and it all climaxes in the kingdom of his son. Everyone in this hall of faith was looking for that kingdom. Have you ever said to someone, hey, let me show you how that's done? Well, of course you have. We all have. At times, the best explanation is a demonstration. It's better to show a person how it's done than it is to tell them. Some lessons are better caught than taught. And this is true of faith. Warren Wiersbe writes, The best way for faith to grow is to walk with the faithful. And the author of Hebrews would agree. For the rest of chapter 11, he encourages the faith of his readers by pointing to people who live by and continued in their faith. And he starts... By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. Now understand, true faith always responds to God on his terms, not our terms. 
Both Adam's two sons offered a sacrifice. Abel went out to his flocks and slaughtered a lamb. Cain went into his fields and brought a fruit basket. But Abel offered the more excellent sacrifice because his offering was the sacrifice that God desired. Now remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with fig leaves. And it turned out to be an ironic twist. You ever handled a fig leaf? You'll find out how itchy and how scratchy they are if you have. But God was much more merciful. Instead of fig leaves, he clothed the fallen family in soft lamb skins. But since animals don't usually give up their pelts voluntarily, it necessitated the killing of that lamb. God was teaching us that the wages of sin is death. It's hypothesized that when God rejected Cain's sacrifice, he was 129 years old. Cain had been offering lambs 100 plus years. That means he knew better. But pride got the best of him. Cain tried to substitute the work of his hands for the blood of the lamb, and God rejected his offering. When Cain laid his crops on the altar, I'll bet he was humming that Frank Sinatra tune. I did it my way. But you don't come to God your way. If you truly love God, you'll love him in the way that he wants to be loved, not just the way that's convenient for you. People today believe that God will forgive you as long as you're sincere, that your understanding of God and the details of your faith don't matter. Oh, but that's not true. Faith isn't me striking a deal of my own liking with God. It's accepting God's terms. Well, he says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch experienced what all Christians today hope to one day experience. He was raptured. One evening after dinner, Old Enoch told the missus that he was going to take the dog for a walk. And he never came back. Enoch made such a habit of walking with God, of simply enjoying God and enjoying God's presence, that on this occasion he ended up closer to God's house than to his, and God just took him home. Enoch pleased God because of his faith. For verse 6 tells us, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. And this is the theme of the whole chapter. The only way for us to gain God's favor is by faith. And here's what constitutes true faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Sincere faith believes God exists And expects God to bless. It believes God exists. And it expects God to bless. Faith is a Godward expectation. When my daughter Natalie was little. She would gaze up at me with those big blues. And she would ask, Daddy, I want some ice cream. I would would recall that she hadn't eaten her dinner. And that it was just before bedtime. And that another parent had already said no. And so I would say, okay, princess, 
Let's get you some ice cream. <laughs> For with my little girl, man, I was a soft touch. And so is God with his kids. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But you have to seek. You have to have faith. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. You remember prior to Noah, the earth was watered by heavy dew. It had never actually rained. At the time, the earth had a different ecosystem, but it had the same cynicism. Imagine the cable news reporters grilling Noah as to why he was building this enormous boat out in the desert. They mocked him and ridiculed him. I'm sure Noah's ark was fodder for the late night talk show hosts. Noah reminds us that faith is never popular. Noah was unmoved, though, by the criticism because he was moved by godly fear. Noah cared about God's approval more than he did his reputation among men. And so despite the public scorn for his project, we're told Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and, made, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It was a faith-filled Noah who built an ark and preached impending judgment. Faith hears what other people don't. It's privy to information other people lack. Faith is often laughed at. Just remember, Noah was the one who got the last laugh. And by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, Abraham comes home one night and he says to his wife, Sarah, honey, pack up, we're moving. And she replies, but Abe, where are we going? And Abraham answers, trust me, when God tells me, you'll be the first to know. Imagine the discussion that ensued. Noah believed without seeing. Abraham believed without knowing. And I think the latter may be the more difficult. I don't have to see as long as God tells me what's going on. It's when God conceals the details. When I'm expected to trust him, even when I can't trace him. That's when faith gets hard. It's when I don't have all the facts that my faith gets tested. See, too many of us are addicted to details. Oh, we demand to know why. But faith turns that why into an O. For you don't need to know why when you're sure of who. Verse 9. By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I like how author Kent Hughes helps us think of Abraham's faith in modern day terms. He writes, Imagine God promising you and your descendants the land of Guatemala. And in obedience, you travel there and live for the rest of your life in your camper, along with your son's families and their campers. Moving from place to place, 
you remain an alien for the remainder of your sojourn without full citizenship rights, a perpetual outsider. You see, Abraham was given a land that he never fully possessed. And he was okay with that. For he was actually looking for a heavenly home. Abraham realized that in this life, like all of us, he was merely passing through. You know, you and I are foolish to think too much of earthly stuff. I mean, what can you and I actually control? Our control over things is minimal. Control is an illusion. So much of what we trust in falls under the category here today and gone tomorrow. This is why a wise man, a wise woman, keeps their eyes on the ultimate eternal destination. The city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Then he says, by faith, Sarah herself also receives strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Abraham was a hundred years old. Sarah, an unbelievable 90, when she birthed the promised child. They were the first couple in history to qualify for a senior discount on their labor and delivery expenses. (laughs) It was by faith. Sarah conceived because she believed. And perhaps God wants to work a miracle of new life in you today. Maybe you're weak and weary. Maybe you need strength. Maybe you think you're past the age for whatever it is God might be calling you to do. No, God can fulfill his promises. He can make his word stand. You just need to have faith. Have you judged him faithful who promised? Do you have a Godward expectation? And then he says, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. Oh, boy. What an insult on Abraham's male ego. Notice the writer here says of Abraham's libido, it was as good as dead. Not even Viagra could help the old boy. I mean, he was beyond hope, as good as dead. And yet God was able to give him strength. For from Abraham, this one who was as good as dead, notice, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. See, this is what faith enables a person to do, to see what's afar off, embrace it, and then use it for a challenge that is up close. Faith gives you the ability to take the far off and apply it to the up close. He says, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, faith refuses to dwell in the past. It focuses not backwards, but forwards. 
But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. People of faith live with eternity in mind. They evaluate situations and they adopt values and they make decisions from a forever perspective. See, heaven is the motherland of faith. Perhaps you heard the story of pioneer missionary Henry Morrison. Henry was returning to the States after 40 years on the mission field in Africa. He happened to be on board the same boat as the United States president, Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from a safari. When the boat docked in New York Harbor, a huge reception greeted the president. Morrison, though, exited the boat alone and quite dejected. After all he had done, 40 years on the mission field, here he is returning home and no one seemed to care. But as he was getting off the boat, the Lord reminded him, Henry, you're not home yet. We all should remind ourselves of this same truth. This world is not our home. Friends, we are not home yet. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, and God always puts faith to the test, always. He promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Then he waited 25 years to work the miracle, and their faith would be tested again. For years after the son arrives, God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Abraham passed God's test, but it was more complicated than first thought. You know, the writer here quotes Genesis 21, verse 12, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. See, God had promised Abraham that he would sire a great nation through his son Isaac. That he would give birth to the Messiah, the deliverer of our salvation through Isaac. So he's thinking, if he sacrifices Isaac, where's he going to get his grandsons? Where are the Messiah's forebearers going to come from? What God is commanding Abraham to do here defies logic. The future of the nation, the promise of God's salvation for all mankind is riding on this man's expression of faith. Well, the words written in verse 17 are so simple. It says, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. But that hardly does justice to the reality of Abraham's unquestioning faith. Genesis 22 verse 3 tells us the day after God's command came. Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. It was the very next day. Early in the morning, no less. Abraham didn't have any time to stall. There was no hesitation. There was no arguing with God over the matter. No, he just obeyed. I hope my faith never gets tested to this extreme. I mean, what would you do if God told you to offer up your only son as a sacrifice? We know what Abraham did. He took Isaac to the appointed place. He strapped him to the altar. He raised a knife above his throat. How could he sacrifice the embodiment of all his hopes? Verse 19 tells us, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. The Greek word 
here translated concluding was a mathematical word. It means to calculate. See, Abraham was mathematical in his deliberations. You know, often we Christians are accused of having blind faith or faith that denies logic. But not so. Our faith is a reasonable faith. It just adds God into our calculations. Abraham reasoned the situation out. God had given him a son. Isaac was essential to the fulfillment of God's plan. Yet Abraham was certain that God had told him to sacrifice his son. So in Abraham's mind, it meant that God must be planning to raise Isaac from the dead. That was his calculation. There had never been a resurrection to this point, yet Abraham figured that God would perform the first. Again, verse 19, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And here is where the plot really thickens. God never did allow Abraham to actually lay a knife on Isaac, but in his heart of hearts, Abraham sacrificed his only son. And in doing so, it brought Abraham into a deep communion with God. Abraham became the star in the drama of the ages. For 2,000 years later, the Father God would offer his only son, Jesus, in the very same spot that Abraham had offered Isaac. On our Israel tours, we visit Skull Hill, the site of Jesus' crucifixion. And then we walk around the corner and we visit the garden tomb where his body was buried. And I've checked it. It's no longer there. Abraham's faith in resurrection was ultimately fulfilled by Jesus, which means the eventual test of faith is on us. Do we trust in the cross of Jesus and in his resurrection for a forgiven and transformed life? We should. And then he says in verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. This too was amazing faith. Jacob, you remember, stole Esau's birthright by impersonating him. Put the wool on his, the, 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 hair, the wool on his arms to mimic Esau's hairy arms. He fooled his nearly blind father, Isaac, into the blessing. It was a con job. It was a terrible deed. And yet Isaac let it stand. Even in an act of deception, Isaac saw God's providence at work in his life. By faith, Isaac allowed the hijacked blessing to stand. Understand this, please. Faith can see God's hand even in man's injustices. Even when things happen to you that were not right, they were not fair. And yet faith sees God's providence working things out for your good and his glory. And then by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Here was another incredible act of faith. Jacob sensed his grandson's destiny. As in his life, he realized that the younger son would supersede his older brother. And so when it came time to bestow the family blessing, by faith, Jacob swapped hands and blessed the younger Ephraim over his older brother Manasseh. It was a shocking violation of societal norms, but Jacob knew God's will trumps tradition. 
And then Joseph also demonstrated faith. For by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. See, Joseph knew God's word and that Israel's future was in the land of promise. So by faith, he gave his family instructions to bury him back in the land. And Joseph's faith was vindicated. For 400 years later, when Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt, they took with them the bones of Joseph to bury in Canaan. See, the faith of all four Hebrew forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, proved that faith isn't blind faith. It actually sees further. The man of faith doesn't see less than other people. He indeed sees more. And then verse 23, by faith Moses when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now here's some parental faith in action. The Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us, one of Egypt's sacred scribes, who was very discerning in foretelling future events truly, told the king that about this time there would be a child born to the Israelites who if he were reared would bring the Egyptian dominion low and would raise the Israelites. And it was in reaction to that prophecy that Pharaoh ordered all Hebrew male babies to be put to death. And yet he didn't plan on the faith of two parents. They put Moses in a basket and they floated him down the Nile. Moses was found and he was adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter. You know, there comes a point for every parent. We're like Moses' parents. We have to send our adult children out on the river of life. And we have to trust God to guide them or we can't go ourselves. And God was faithful. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know, it's hard to imagine the advantages afforded Moses as a member of the Egyptian dynasty. His wealth was inexhaustible. And yet with the riches of the world at his fingertips, Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Somehow Moses was able to see through the vanity of Egyptian culture and the emptiness of their idolatry. And in contrast to Egyptian foolishness, Moses saw the Hebrews joyful even in their distress. He was willing to suffer momentarily to lay claim on an eternal God. Notice Moses swapped the passing pleasures of sin to identify with God's people. Hey, sin is pleasurable. If it weren't, it wouldn't be tempting. But it's a pleasure that is passing. Indeed, it is here today and gone tomorrow. And how quickly the passing pleasure of sin can turn painful. Reminds me of how the Eskimos kill the wolf. See, they dip a knife in blood and they freeze it. For a wolf, it makes for a tasty popsicle. It licks away the blood. That is, until the tongue of the wolf gets to the blade of the knife. Well, by this time, it's so used to the taste of blood the wolf doesn't realize that it's actually tasting its own blood and it ends up killing itself. The trap was sprung. 
And sin also springs the same kind of trap. At first, it tastes good. Oh, it's so much fun. But at some point, and the problem is, it's not always detectable to you. Your pleasure ends and your destruction begins. Sin looks so inviting until it's compared to God's blessing. As Moses did, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses knew that in the long run he was better off suffering for God than savoring Egypt. Satan often offers instant gratification. Sometimes it's only over the long run that we realize that hardship with Jesus is better than treasure in hell. And then he says in verse 28, By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. God told Moses to kill a lamb and to spread its blood on the door of every Hebrew home. And as a result, God's plague would pass over those houses where the blood had been applied. And this is now true for us in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Paul says that Jesus is our Passover. By faith in his blood, the blood of Christ gets sprinkled on the doors of our heart. And spiritual death passes over us through faith. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. With their back to the sea, with their face toward the attacking Egyptian army, the Hebrews had nowhere to go but up. Moses trusted God. God worked a miracle. The Red Sea parted before them. And note the charitable recounting of this story. Notice it says, by faith, Israel passed through the Red Sea. And if you go back and read Exodus, you'll find that very few Israelites had any faith. Only Moses, you know, had faith. All the others doubted and wanted to return to Egypt. And yet this is the flavor of the whole chapter here. For every member of the hall of faith doesn't always act like they belong. You remember Noah got drunk. Abraham succumbed to fear and lied. Sarah laughed at God when she heard the promise. Yet God commends each one of them for their faith and refuses to recall their lapses. That's so encouraging to me. This is the wonder of our salvation. Chapter 10 told us the just shall live by faith. It's faith, not our own works, not our consistency, not our undying devotion, but it's faith. That makes us right with God. God treats us as if we'd never sinned, even when we do, by faith. Now the writer of Hebrews starts to rapidly go through the history, noting example after example of how God's people pleased God by faith. He says in verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. This may have been the greatest example of collective faith in all the Old Testament. Israel's army followed the strange battle plan that God gave to General Joshua. On the seventh day, the priests circled the city walls seven times, blew their trumpets, and the city walls all fell down, collapsed before them. It was by faith the harlot Rahab 
did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. As a harlot, Rahab spoke to her share of strangers, that's for sure. And she had heard of the Hebrews, how God had delivered them from Egypt. Thus, when two of their spies seek shelter at her house, she cooperates. Rahab was a shady lady, but she was nobody's fool. She figured Israel's God was the true God. And due to her faith, as ill-formed and undeveloped as it was, she threw in her lot with the Hebrews. And it was because of that faith that she reaped the rewards of their victory. And then he says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. An obvious reference there to Daniel. Here he just reels off in rapid-fire succession examples of faith that we could study for months. The point is, anybody who ever became a somebody with God did so by faith. Verse 34, faith even quenched the violence of fire, a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Hebrews who refused to bow to the king's idol. Men of faith escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. The raising of the dead refers to the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. And yet notice in every case, faith is never passive. It's always active. All the people mentioned here are action figures. They acted on what they believe. Real faith does. By faith, battles were won. And kingdoms were conquered. And even the dead were raised. Faith isn't lethargic. Even when faith waits, it's always reaching and stretching and expecting from God. And faith not only does, it also endures. Verse 35. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Believers under the threat of torture, even death, could have denounced Christ to escape danger, but their eyes were fixed on heaven. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. You remember Jeremiah was chained and thrown into a pit of sludge. The point here is that faith doesn't always ensure your deliverance. In fact, at times, it seals your persecution. Verse 37, they were stoned. This was the plight of the prophet Zechariah. And they were sawn in two. There's actually a non-biblical book. It's called The Ascension of Isaiah. And it has a passage that tells us that the false prophets took Isaiah while still alive and literally sawed him in half. The book says that when they began to cut into the prophet's body, and I quote, he neither cried aloud nor wept, but his lips spake with the Holy Spirit. He endured by faith. And of course, later he was diagnosed with a split personality. Just, just wanted to just maybe throw that in there. Others were tempted, 
were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. These were citizens of heaven. These people of faith were on loan to the world as a witness to God, and yet they were never appreciated. If you live by faith, don't expect to be popular with this world. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Apparently, their faith didn't produce lives of health and wealth, did they? To the contrary, their faith produced suffering and poverty and even banishment. Verse 39, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. And here is the common denominator with everyone in God's hall of faith. They exhibited faith without realizing its ultimate fulfillment. Great faith means much to God, but it receives little in terms of present earthly compensation. Faith's hope went largely unrealized in all these examples. These people received a foretaste of God's blessing, but no one cashed in completely. Everyone on this list had to wait And the reason is amazing. Verse 40 is going to blow your mind. Why did they have to wait? For God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The members of the Old Testament's hall of faith were content with a promise of salvation. They long to be forgiven. They long to be changed from the inside out and have total access to God. Yet they settled for stopgap measures. Animal sacrifices earned for them a probation, but not a permanent pardon. The law of Moses was in their hands, but it was never in their heart. They were represented before God by a human priesthood, despite the fact that they had no personal access to God themselves. See, these men and women of faith were waiting for a new covenant while living under the old. And the writer of the letter says that they were waiting on us. The new and better way the Hebrews had been promised wasn't just for Israel, but it was for all people, including you and I today. And God wanted to add you and me to his family of faith. And thus they waited. God's desire is for us to also learn to walk by faith. And faith begins with an expectation. Do you believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? If so, turn from your sin and turn to the Son. And seek the Lord with all your heart. And if you do, you'll find him.